1: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game, with me, Kevin Day, and him, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I have to ask you this, it's questions day. Um, We've we've occasionally delayed the start of the show for various reasons, like the Women's World Cup final, for example, just a couple of weeks ago. But we're not kicking this off until just about 10 past 7 on a Sunday evening for another of your culinary experiments,
0: Kieran. Explain to the people <laughs> out there why we're late. Uh, yes, I-, I was busy making a peach salsa mm-hmm. uh, to go along with the baba ganoush with the uh, <laughs> uh, Korean beer chicken, which, I- which I'd made. Uh, I-, I-, I, I like, like my- cooking. It- it- you're-, you're a creative artist, I, I'm the antithesis of it. I just add up numbers. So I, I love to be creative in the kitchen. <laughs> You've gone full fusion, though, there, haven't you? Korean chicken, babaganoush. Well, because Brighton are playing in the Europa League, I got to get uh, used to uh, you know a bit of more international cuisine. Yeah, I, I,
1: feel. I wonder where you can watch
0: those games, Kieran, on
1: TV. <laughs> um, and congratulations to all of you listening at home who said, bless you. When I said baba ganoush, that's the correct <laughs> thing to do. Uh, yeah, my culinary day was less exciting than yours, Kira. Who Whoever thought that drinking pints of Guinness in 95-degree heat was a good idea is... I uh, know, oh, Kieran, let's face it as well. Let's a quick look at the league table with Man United having just lost. You're in sixth, we're in seventh. I don't think there's ever been a time when we've both been in the European position. It's not even the day before kick-off alphabetically. This is all quite exciting, isn't it? Absolutely wonderful, yes, yeah, and good result for your
0: guys today. So, so
1: well done. First half was one of the dullest first halves of football of <laughs> it. Mean, even in the second half, only Palace could make a five-goal thriller slightly dull. It's, <laughs> uh, but good, good draws for you. I mean, you got the dream draw here, and you got Amsterdam. Basically, that's
0: what you wanted, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going with a severe warning from the Baroness already. <laughs>
1: Okay, let's get on with some questions. We've got some crackers as always. And our first one comes from Mark Collins. And Mark Collins is voicing what I think a lot of fans say that even though we've got one of the most amazing sets of stadia in the Premier League in this country, Mark gets really frustrated at matches because he can't get online at half time. I was wondering how much it would cost a club with, say, a 30,000 seater stadium to provide good Wi-Fi connection for all fans, and if the commercial benefits of being able to directly market to the fans would offset the cost, although perhaps Wi-Fi will be obsolete before you get around to answering this this question. (laughs) Always, I love the little stiletto at the end, right there, the little rapier, little sucker (laughs) punch with a sharp
0: object. Well done. (laughs) That's definitely in the harsh but fair category there, Mark. Um, I, I spoke to my friend, The Skunk, who works for one of the um, internet companies? And he said, "I dread to think what sort of internet company he works for. <laughs> if that's what if that's what it's called." Yes, um, and he said, "It's it's simply a problem. Is is the technology just isn't quite there as yet? That um, they're fully aware that fans are all piling onto the internet." At the same time. And, and the strength of the routers, especially given that it is an outdoor environment, simply can't cope with 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people all trying to access simultaneously. Um, the technology will get there because from the point of the clubs, you know, they're losing out on marketing opportunities. Whoever's sponsoring the match who wants to go direct to consumer. Will will be missing out on opportunities, it, it, and cl- clubs are trying to get more savvy. You know, if, if you if you score a winning goal ten minutes from time, it would make a, a very good a sort of commercial proposition for the club to be able to send a yeah you know, a quick text to everybody there. If you if you buy the players, if you, if you buy the shirt with the player's name who's just scored that goal, we'll give you a ten percent discount before before the you know uh, before seven pm tonight, or whatever it's going to be. So. I think the clubs are are keen. They're, they're certainly the the data companies are keen, but the technology is not quite there yet. And anybody that's ever travelled by by train or, or other modes of transport will will be able to confirm that. Um, we we pay a lot of money. We we pay premium rates for internet coverage, but I think it could be argued you don't get a premium product in return.
1: Well, they need to sort out technology in other areas, Kieran, as well, because we've seen already this season at Arsenal. We saw it at Palace last year where kickoffs were delayed because uh, mm. wh- whatever it is technology-wise that's getting people in with, with paperless tickets just crashed. So, But as you say, it shouldn't be too much to ask in this day and age. I mean, I can understand it at somewhere like Sellers Park because the, the half-awake where we are... Isn't fit for purpose, full stop. But it's got really thick, broad walls. It was made in the sixties. It's it's pretty much concrete, so you can sort you can sort of get that. But when you go to a new stadium, you, you expect as a matter of, I mean, really today, Kieran, everybody was trying to stream a film halfway through the first half rather than watch what was <laughs> being played out in front of us. We we're desperate to, so we need help. Our next question, Kieran, comes from uh, Mexico. It's a long time since we've had a question from Mexico, and it comes from Randy Ishelman. And Randy says, saludos from Mexico. I was wondering about broadcast rights, says Randy. The Premier League sold broadcast rights in what they call LATAM, the Latin American companies of Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, and Panama, to a streaming-only provider, Paramount Plus Latin America. Internet access across these seven countries averages out to only around 65% and therefore excludes some 63 million viewers in these football-mad countries. Also, for those of us with the internet, it's often too slow for reliable live streaming. As broadcast rights go, is there a metric that the EPL uses to evaluate the size of the check received for a streaming-only broadcaster versus potential loss of slash inability to reach X number of viewers? And do the on-field advertisers have to be made aware of any differences in subscribers? So it's not just here we're having internet yes. connection problems.
0: Right. Uh, well, first of all, th- thanks for thanks for getting in contact, Randy, all the way from Mexico. We didn't know we had uh, listeners there. So, uh, yeah, thoroughly, uh, thoroughly chuffed. As far as the Premier League is concerned, all that matters is the size of the cheque. Um, especially for a market which it would not be probably in the top four or five. If you you take a look at the US market, if you take a look at the Scandinavian market, they're all huge, some of the Asian markets as well. So unfortunately, um, the Premier League is is going to focus, and you can understand it from its point of view, because ultimately the Premier League is a members club, and the, uh, the members will be saying, we want the rates of rights to go up on on an annual basis as best we can, and therefore it would have simply taken the highest bidder. I can understand the uh, the annoyance of people who who can't access. I, I suspect what will happen is that the likes of Paramount Plus Latin America will say, "Well, we do make our product available." To, uh, you know, to bars, to restaurants, and so on, so people can congregate and watch Premier League. And as far as the um, advertisers are concerned, again, I, th- I think if you actually work out the numbers, I was, I was talking to our friend, The Secret Broadcaster, earlier today on a different topic and he said that the uh, subscription channels only make around about 10 percent of their overall income from adverts so Given that I, the the Premier League is not necessarily the biggest product as far as the Latin American market is concerned, because they've got very dedicated domestic football followings, um, it's it's not a huge check to begin with, and therefore the loss of eyeballs in terms of advertisers would not be significant. I do wish you
1: wouldn't use that expression, Kieran. The loss of eyeballs—it sends a little shudder down. <laughs> So it's, um, are you telling me, Kieran, that our secret broadcaster, who's been very good to us, mm-hmm. is, is perhaps slightly lacking in, in knowledge of Guatemala and Honduras in terms
0: of their broadcasting rights? He's simply a home nation's boy, is he? No, no, no. no. He's, uh, he's, he's a man of, of, of many countries. In fact, he was travelling today, but he, he was decent enough to get in contact with me uh, when I sent out, it, with the equivalent of uh, the, the Gotham City uh, Big Torch to Batman. Yeah, you see, remember our
1: conversation last week about me not being able to keep a secret? Yes. If that was if that was me saying that, I'd say, in fact, he was travelling today. He left on the 7.45 from Station X. <laughs> he then said people would very easily be able to track him down. But I'm, I'm being more discreet here. Uh, Daniel Robertson has our next question, and it's a scenario I quite like, actually. So Daniel Robertson says... I read that FIFA compensated clubs around $10,000 for every day that their player was involved in the Men's World Cup. If this is true, is there a scenario where some clubs are actually making a profit on players who are involved in the World Cup,
0: i.e. if their wages are lower than $70,000 a week? That's right. It's a flat fee as far as FIFA are concerned. It's a flat compensatory fee. And it also started before the World Cup Club- before the World Cup commenced itself because teams were being put together in the squads and they were uh, playing some sort of pre, uh, pre-tournament friendlies and so on. So I think uh, I think the payment actually started around about one to two weeks before the competition and then it went on through the competition. So um, there are clubs as, as low as League 2 um, who had players who were uh, participating in the FIFA World Cup. I know when I last spoke to one of the clubs in League Two uh, about this issue, they were still quite miffed because although FIFA are obliged to pay them, they've not got round, certainly hadn't got round when when I last spoke to them, they hadn't got round to to physically paying the money that was due given the World Cup took place in November 2022. Uh, That does seem to be quite a poor show. So I'm hoping that they will have speeded up the processes by then or by now.
1: Our next question, Kieran, comes from James Poulin, or perhaps Poulin, who knows? Let's go for Poulin. Uh, well, no, actually, no, let's go for Poulin, because it's about European finals. James says, my question is about European finals, which I've just revealed. How much does the
0: club, city or country who hosts the final pay for the right to do so? Right. Um, for this, I went on to the, uh, the, the london.gov.uk website, which on the sunniest Sunday of the year, uh, it probably isn't a very sensible thing to do, but it didn't stop me. And um, London or Wembley did bid to host the 2023 Champions League final. Clearly, it went elsewhere in the end. Um, and it, it surprised me that the the cost of hosting, uh, as far as the the Greater London Authority was concerned, was five point six million pounds, which you know, is a considerable amount of money, and, and that's effectively just to, to get the benefit. And then you know, we had this this long conversation with, with Mark Roberts uh, in, in our la- most recent episode, and there would be additional security costs, there would be additional other hosting costs to be incurred by Wembley Stadium itself. So this this figure of 5.6 million is just the cost to the council. Having said that, when the Champions League took place in Cardiff, which I think was in 2018, uh, they did an assessment post the tournament uh, or post the final. And they estimated that the benefit to to Cardiff in terms of additional hospitality generation, increased profile, the Vox Pops that were coming in uh, and so on was somewhere in the region of 45 million. So, So it does pay for itself. And I think it pays for itself if you do it once every few years. Uh, if, if you were to have it taking place at the same venue every year, I think you could end up in a similar scenario to, to what we've seen in Eurovision. When you, you and I both remember when Ireland seemed to win it practically every year. And uh, the Irish government quickly realised it was costing them a fortune to host all of these different countries. Clearly, it was, you know, there was far more people arriving who were uh, affiliated with the uh, with the event, uh, because it's it's you know it's, it covers so many countries. So the Irish government, uh, we're saying you know, we have to go and put Jedward on with a song uh, to make sure that we don't win it because <laughs> we can't afford to, to to repeat repeat the success. It's uh, well, there is a parallel with Eurovision
1: here, though, Kieran, isn't there? Because it, what happens in in European football is. It it does tend to be those cities that have a tourist industry already or an infrastructure already or somewhere like Cardiff that already has the large venues and the hotels. It's places like Latvia that will never get a Champions League final or probably a Europa League final. And it's places like Tallinn um, or Riga, uh, Tallinn being a completely different capital, but Riga, for example, are the sort of places that would benefit
0: more from getting the occasional final, wouldn't they? But they would, but I think you have to do sort of a cost-benefit analysis. We saw West Ham get to the final and win the Europa Conference last season, but the stadium wasn't very big. And I think a lot of West Ham fans were a bit peeved that uh, they they missed out on the opportunity mm. to see uh, you know, that's, that's the first sort of international tournament that West Ham have won since winning the World Cup in 1966, <laughs> as far as their <laughs> fan base are concerned.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, ne- I never d- did understand why that uh, statue outside Upton Park of the West Ham World Cup, with also had a Fulham player in it. Uh, it's a nice statue. Now, our next question, Kieran, uh, puts me uh, and us in a bit of a quandary, really, because it's clearly a long time since this question was asked and clearly what the question is about has happened and is probably going to stop happening quite soon. But I think it's a fair question and also, i like to give encouragement to those of our listeners who have been on the waiting list uh, longer. There are people on the NHS who are getting operations quicker than we're asking some of these questions. Kieran, let's be fair. So I think I think it's only fair to ask this question. And I'm going to ask it as it was asked, because otherwise we'll get into a complete nightmare of different tenses, past, future, present. So I'm going to ask it as though uh, it, this was when Paul Glover, when it was fresh off the email from Paul Glover, way back when. And Paul Glover says, since last year's Men's World Cup, and the long periods of injury time, there's been talk about whether the approach taken during the World Cup would be used in domestic football, and it would seem that this hasn't happened yet. It may be cynical of me to think that this may be a factor in this, but do you think there's a financial aspect, and more specifically pressure from broadcasters? My thinking is that broadcasters know that in a live show, they can expect a certain amount of airtime for advertising, and that by more of that pesky football being played and taking up potential money-making airtime, Then broadcasters stand to lose out on advertising revenue. Now, those who are inclined to conspiracy theories, Kieran, might might already say that Paul's absolutely right because we've seen it happen this season. first two weeks of the season, we were seeing eight, nine, ten minutes added on to the first half and to the end of the game. Um, It's not something that's ever completely bothered me, I have to say, but we were seeing up to 15, 16 minutes in the first couple of weeks. That's already down considerably. I think we had three minutes for half time and six or seven at the end of the game today. I know the Arsenal one was quite long, but a lot of stuff had gone on. So we've already seen it. And there are already people saying, well, that's the broadcasters are saying to the referees, you're using up way too much of our
0: advertising time. Or is that as cynical as Paul Glover suggests in his question? I don't think that there is a conspiracy theory here. No. I think what we are seeing no. is is that the players are adapting Uh, And we're therefore seeing less time wasting and we're seeing uh, less. You don't see the players when a free kick is given to the opposition. The first thing they tend to do is either throw the ball away or they stand in front of the ball because that's effectively going to be an instant yellow card under the sort of the guidance introduced by Howard Webb. So a combination of the players realizing that the initial reaction of referees was they were going to apply this policy. Um, has actually resulted in, in more football being played. But I think the. The belief that the broadcasters are going to kick up a fuss, it it depends upon who the broadcaster is. And again, we've already mentioned that we've we've had a chat with our friend, the secret broadcaster, uh, and it was, in fact, in relation to this particular question. And his reply was, as far as the satellite broadcasters are concerned, they're actually quite relaxed because they've got a a two-and-a-half to three-hour show and actually having more football time, as it were, just simply means that they'll have slightly less pund- punditry, and what you tend to see is that the the viewing figures do drop off at the end of the game. So actually, it's it, it, Sky and, and TNT and, and so on. They'll be more than happy for the matches, and also because the broadcasters are only getting a, a small fraction of their revenue, the subscription borders. Broadcasters, only getting a small fraction, around about 10% of their overall income coming from um, the, the adverts. It doesn't really affect them so much. What's of greater concern is the free-to-air broadcasters. Uh, the BBC doesn't like to shift the 10 o'clock news. It will do, you know, and we, we, we always, you know, we, we get the we get the very grave voice tending to be coming from the commentator to say something along those lines. Um, But ITV, I think, are the the biggest uh, potential losers here. And, of course, we now have Channel 4 showing some of the England matches in the Nations League and so on. So the reason for that is that they tend to sell advertising slots for specific hours. And if the football match runs on, that means that they might not be able to get the the maximum amounts. And also, if you think about it from um, the perspective of the free-to-air broadcasters you know companies such as itv is far more reliant upon uh, upon uh, advertising income and normally i think we we're, we're now down as far as the uh, the terrestrial uh commercial stations are concerned. We're now down to around about 40 to 41 minutes per hour of actual broadcast TV, and the rest is adverts. If you've got a football match where uh, the the first half and, and the second half are going to be going on for 50, 55 minutes, can you see from from the broadcaster's point of view, they, they feel that they will be squeezed. Now, if it's the World Cup, then yeah, you, know, you have to suck it and see because you'd be claiming, you know, pretty pretty big right, right rates anyway, especially if it's you know England or the home nations or you know a big match. Um, so they don't like it. Um, the the broadcasters, the free to air broadcasters, the satellite broadcasters, they're far more relaxed about it because it, it's more football. And if it delivers the level of excitement that we saw at the end of the Arsenal versus Manchester United match today, then. It's great for them because, you know, the the no- it creates a noise in its own rights as far as social media is concerned, and yeah, that can only benefit as uh, you know Sky or TNT when they are putting out uh, their uh, clips on YouTube and uh, Twitter and so on.
1: It's interesting, Kirin, because uh, a BBC hour is already ten minutes longer than an ITV hour. An ITV hour is 48 minutes of, of TV on the BBC. It's 58 minutes. So like you say, when ITV have got games, they are being squeezed. I'd I'd be interested if you could ask our friend, the secret broadcaster. It's really difficult for me not to say his name. I'm being very good here, Kim. If you could ask our friend, the secret broadcaster, whether or how much research has been done into... We, we know that people tend to watch big games uh, if they're on both ITV and BBC, especially England games, at the same time, World Cup finals, etc., semi finals, people tend to watch uh, BBC rather than ITV. The figures are always slightly higher. And I wonder whether they know how many of those people are watching because they don't like the ad break immediately after the, the, the final whistle goes at the at half time and at the end of the game. So I'd be interested to see what you had to say about that, Gideon. I like our next question, Kieran, because it comes from that uh, very big country we talked about uh, last week. And I did I did, I did, say Australia was big. I didn't. There was no part of me that said it wasn't big. I didn't really think I deserved some of the teasing I got about my geographical knowledge there. <clears throat> but it's also given me um, uh, an excuse to do some historical research, which I always like, some of which I knew anyway. But it comes from Liam Kavanagh. Aliyah says, in Australia last year, we saw the first Christmas Day game of any sport in the National Basketball League. It's been seen as a great success with the broadcast numbers being the highest jet for the entire competition this season. Already, the T20 Cricket League, the Big Bash League, is talking about getting in on these broadcast rights and running their own Christmas Day fixture. Although it's probably very unlikely the Australian A-League will follow suit. They have many other of their own issues without adding this debate to the mix. The USA has done this for quite a while in both basketball and gridiron. How long do you think, if ever, it will take the Premier League or in the absence of the Premier League, the EFL or any other football taking advantage of the dead air of Christmas Day and start playing games on Christmas Day? <clears throat> it's only the last game, I think it was 1965, Kieran. We used to play, in fact, during the 50s, there used to be a Christmas Day, Boxing Day doubleheader. Mm-hmm. So you would play, you know, uh, I think famously, Charlton played Sunderland on Christmas Day and then travelled to Sunderland on Boxing Day. Um, Of course, even more famously, Kieran, you all know this, and this is one of the reasons I really like this question, uh, Brighton lost uh, 18-0 to Norwich on Christmas Day in 1940. Uh, There was a war going on, so that was an excuse. Brighton did only turn up with five players and the rest of the team was made up of Norwich fans. But still, I get the opportunity to say, you lost 18-0, Kieran, to (laughs) Norwich on 1940. Uh, Brentford tried to try to revive it early in the 80s when they had a game against Wimbledon um unfortunately it didn't go down well because the gen chairman uh, of Brentford tried to sell it as a favour to women which basically went women you'll be too busy in the kitchen you don't want men under your feet how about we play Brentford against Wimbledon on Christmas day and it didn't go down very well so there is a long tradition of for about a century games were played on Christmas day for a long time, Kieran. There was no TV or there was only one channel. So Christmas Day was a very good time for people. There were, there were far fewer public holidays in the in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So why not spend one playing football? I, I, I suggest it's unlikely that we will ever return to Christmas Day football, Kieran, but why not? Well, I'll be too busy making peach salsa, I would imagine. <laughs> on not on Christmas Day, Kevin, unless global warming is getting even worse than we thought it was.
0: It goes very well with turkey peach salsa, Kevin. You, you... Does it? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you should try it.
1: I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now, Kieran, I'm not trying it.
0: My <laughs> foot. My foot's
1: going down. You'll be telling me you stuff it with turkey and peach salsa. Oh, yeah, good combo. Good our, combo. F- our friend in Mexico may well like that, the idea of that, that combo, don't it? You'll <laughs> be putting chocolate sauce
0: on it next year, good Lord. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so back to the question. And, and actually, again, this ties in with our interview with, with Mark Roberts. If you're going to a football matches on Christmas Day, then you're going to need security. You're going to need policing on Christmas Day. Um, so you know, I think police officers are entitled to not have to be called in on an overtime. Um, you've then got issues of transport. You've then got the issues of the football clubs themselves because they're going to have to get their staff in and you know, we know historically as far as boxing day matches are concerned, they'll often will be you know the first match will often take place at midday. Uh, i I can remember one one uh, boxing day uh, actually seeing two football matches. In a single day in London, I, I went to see Brighton lose at Chelsea, and then went to see. Uh, I went up to Highbury to see Arsenal play Southampton. So it, it can it can be done as far as uh, the the facilities are concerned. But for for me, you know, and and I'm not not being critis- critical of Liam here. He's used this phrase, "the dead air of Christmas Day." Well, Christmas Christmas Day should be for families, yeah. You know, and football has football now dominates the cricket season. Football now dominates rugby. Football now dominates every other sport, and perhaps, perhaps actually having twenty four hours off from football is is good for us. Um, the broadcasters, you know, they they've got families, so you know, who wants to do the punditry on on Christmas Day? And um, you know, and, and Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher and. and uh, you know everybody else uh, for for both uh, TNT and Sky. You know they they do they're entitled to spend a little bit of time with their family as well. And the players. You know historically, what has been the case is quite often if the players aren't traveling to if if the next fixture isn't too far, the players get the opportunity to spend time with with their families. Yes, they'll go in for light training on Christmas Day and, and then spend a few hours with you know, the partners and the kids and the parents and so on. So. Can it be done? Yes. Is there evidence that you'd get a big spike in viewers, and ultimately, I think this would be the ultimate driver? I, 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 I can only presume that the Premier League and TNT and Sky have have done their estimates of the level of interest, and they probably said we don't think there's there's enough to to warrant it. Um, and you know, do do you really want to be getting up at seven o'clock on? Christmas Day morning to travel to a football club because we should be opening our presents with <laughs> exactly. friends and family and loved ones. I'll tell you who would do it, Kieran.
1: Martin Keown, he'd do it. He'd do Christmas Day. He'd, volu- he'd volunteer for, for TNT and for, for BBC. Yeah, i will do both. Um, oh, there, there is something though, Kieran, about, I mean, the Boxing Day game is is special, isn't it? I don't think anybody would want to, to mess with that. I mean, I imagine, no, no. I imagine knowing how you are with the uh, fixture computer, I imagine you're at home Every year on Boxing Day, I imagine to a team uh, in the bottom three of the table as well. I'm, I'm guessing, we very rarely are. But there is something about that. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want football on Christmas Day. <laughs> Boxing Day is perfect. perfect. Yes, yeah, good um, recovery day. Um, Martin Avery, he said good recovery day like with elite athletes there, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I the amount of peach Souser I had yesterday. Um, also, it's also the best day to take your book that you've got for Christmas into the toilet box today, isn't it? You've got an excuse to be in there for 40 minutes, uh, which is something you can all do with a book that's coming out very soon, everybody. Uh, Martin Avery has our next question. And Martin has some questions around player data that he's hoping we can shed some light on. How much do clubs spend on player data gathering? For example, a Premier League club like Liverpool, renowned for being big on data analysis, to a championship... Club like Bristol City, Martin says I'm a Bristol City fan, or a League Two club like Leighton Orient, is it possible to
0: separate this kind of expenditure from clubs' financial records? Right. As far as the vast majority of clubs are concerned, there is there is no detail with regards to the amount that they, they will be giving to the likes of Opta and uh, you know the, the other scouting organisations. Um, a club such as Liverpool will have an internal Data analytical team. Uh, Manchester City uh, uh, recruited somebody from Harvard University with a PhD in astrophysics to do their calculations for them. So these are, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm nerdy. I'll be the first to admit that, and 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 I love a spreadsheet, as you know. But these are mathematical geniuses that that are are crunching the data. Um, so you will have the internal costs and then you will have the external costs now I suspect for a club outside of the Premier League they're going to be mainly using the benefit of the the data organizations who will sell the information and I think you've got to be a little bit careful about how you use it you know, it's it's a bit like if if somebody gives me a piano it doesn't make me a piano player so it's it's exactly the same with data I, I can I can I can produce a balance sheet and I can give it to somebody, but I say, well, well, thanks very much. It doesn't mean anything to me. So it's having people who understand the numbers, which is absolutely critical as well. Some clubs... Don't want to go down that route. You know, the manager might put up resistance because the manager wants to be independent of the rest of the club when it comes to talent recruitment and retention. And he says, "You know, I like this type of player. This is how we're going to play, and I don't want the club interfering." And that 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 psyche still exists to a degree, but it's it's disappearing. The only club which I know does gives out some information is Brighton, because. Um, Tony Bloom, who is the club owner, um, he's famous for his Star Lizard organization, which is, nobody's quite knows what it does, but it's some form of advisory consultancy when it comes to the predictions of the outcomes of sporting events. Um, and I think that goes down on a granular level to uh, individual players. So I, I went, I had a look in, in the small print and if if you've got an owner who is involved in these organisations, they are known, they are what is known as a related party. So therefore, you have to show the the transactions. So so Bryson paid three million pounds in twenty one twenty two to Star Lizard. Um, I, I suspect the football club probably feels they got value for money with regards to that but it does show that yeah we are talking at premier league level certainly millions will be spent on this particular area because that's that's the difference between recruiting a, you know, a, a 100 million pound success and a 100 million dud and yeah you know, from the club's point of view it, it wants to protect its uh, the value of its inventory it it, it pains me to say this uh, kieran but clearly brighton
1: whatever they're doing they're doing something right when it comes to data analysis of players that they're recruiting. I think it's interesting, one of the biggest changes, if you look at the Premier League regulations now, ground regulations, compared to 10 years ago, and this is probably something that cost Luton a bit of money in the two-week delay they had bringing their stadium up to Premier League scratch, is that you now have to uh, provide quite a large number of uh, space for the data analysis team from the away team which certainly 15 years ago, that wouldn't have been a consideration. So along with all the media seats and and TV seats, et cetera, you have to provide the space and also you have to provide the correct um, level of internet and hard wiring so they can do their job undisturbed. While while you and I are trying to get on to see how much peach we should put in our salsa at half-time, Kieran, these people are... uh, so that, and you can only see it expanding as well, can't you, in, in terms of football in future? Because I know one or two clubs are against it and still like the idea of old-fashioned scouts and people like Ray Lewington running his eye over someone. But in, in five years' time, you're going to be left behind if you're not doing this sort of thing, here, aren't you?
0: Yes. I think you should always view data as a complement rather than a substitute for whatever you're doing. But even when it comes down to traditional business, if you take a look at even a company such as Apple, why were they a success? And the likes of Scion and the other people who were developing the smartphones, not a success. It came down not just to doing the data, doing the technology, but also having people there who could look at a product or look at a service in terms of the, the design and so on. An ultimate question, Kieran, is a fascinating one, actually,
1: because it, it appertains to something that we talk about on a very regular basis, and, and something that we assume all our listeners around the world, both existing and new, will understand without us having to explain what it is. Um, and it, it it's clear that there are people who still don't fully understand what it is, and I'm pleased because I don't, to be perfectly honest, I pretend not, I do. But Paul Bentley has asked, do you think the Bosman rule has been good or bad for the sustainability of football? It seems like clubs can miss out on potential transfer fee revenue when the player's contract is running out. This then inflates player wages, so the money goes to the player rather than the selling clubs. Are there any alternatives, for example, something similar to a sell-on clause where the player could be sold for a percentage of the original
0: transfer fee when the contract runs out? right okay so let's go back to the original issue this was a belgian footballer called jean-marc bosman he was playing um, in the belgian league he was a what you might call a journeyman pro and his contract was due for renewal he wanted to move elsewhere and prior to the court ruling um, the football club was allowed to retain the registration of the player. So, so what his employer did, it says, we're not going to allow you to, to go elsewhere, and we're going to give you a pay cut. Now, this seemed in, intuitively unfair. So he uh, he appointed a lawyer. And it went, went through the European court. And, and now we have what is known as the, the Bosman ruling. And the, the way that the Bosman ruling works is that when you sign a contract of employment, uh, along with your registration deal, um, that is for a fixed period of time. There's nothing to stop you from extending it. But at the end of that period of time, you are, in effect, a free employee. You are entitled to, to find alternate employment um, elsewhere. And therefore, we have had uh, a rise in the number of players who have said, well, I've signed a three or four or five year contract. I'm going to sit out that contract. And then at the end of it, I'm going to move elsewhere. And instead of the football club getting a transfer fee, the football player gets the benefit of being able to to get effectively a, a signing on fee. And you know, we, we've saw it, seen Ibrahimović do this. We've seen uh, uh, Pogba do this and, and and many others. So it benefits the football player. As far as Paul's concern is, could we have a, something similar to a sell-on clause? You, you could, um, but then I think we would have to get approval from not just UEFA, but also the the relevant courts operating both in the EU and the UK and potentially elsewhere. Uh, we'd have to see what the reaction of FIFA would be. So it, it would be very complicated. Um, one, of, one of the issues that I have is that we end up talking about football players as if they are commodities. And this is something which has always left me feeling very uneasy um, ultimately, we are dealing with young people, both men and women, as far as their professional careers are concerned. And if I wanted to move elsewhere, then I, I could do so by just giving you know the, the requisite amount of notice as far as my job was concerned. And, and yes, yeah, you know, I might be put on gardening leave depending upon uh, the nature of the job, but I still have to be paid for that period of gardening leave. So, so we do treat footballers in a, in a unique manner. Um, And therefore, I I think there is a case for saying that that they do get a fair amount of protection from the Bosman ruling, as do the clubs themselves, because um, otherwise, you know, how how do you get rid of a member of staff? Uh, Because you you normally have to make them redundant. You know, football clubs do not make players redundant and therefore they don't have to pay redundancy pay. So it, it does work both ways
1: you're talking about Liverpool University here, Kieran. I am not sure producer Guy, even with his house of gold, can afford to put you on gardening leave on this pod, Kieran, while while he tries to lure Swiss Ramble to take over from you in your retirement. I know, well you've got you know more silver tongue lawyers than Guy does, so I think you'd win any argument there. Our last question Kieran comes from uh, John Vince. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie Kieran this this question caused me some slight embarrassment this morning uh, at, the, at the pub. John Vince is a is a Palace fan and and talking of players as commodities John Vince has this question. He says with Ronaldo reported as being on 177 million pound a year at Al NASA, what would Pele's 1.4 million pound a year contract fund million dollar a year contract beg your pardon? At New York Cosmos equate to today, and then John says, "P.S. Kevin, you said I'm the bloke who stands in the corner of the Porsons, but I've only been twice to the Porsons. When you've been there, once when you were with Julian Chennery, I'd like to know who my doppelganger is." Well, I can report <coughs> that John Vince wasn't at the Porsons today, because <coughs> when I got to the Porsons, I was having a drink with Julian Chennery in the ninety degree heat, and I thought, "Ah, that's John Vince in the corner. I shall go and apologise to him, and we can have a little chuckle." About me mistaking him for somebody else, and and it wasn't John Vince. Uh, it was <laughs> it was somebody who didn't know who I was and hadn't heard of the pod, and it all got very, <laughs> very embarrassing. Till so I had to do one of my looks towards Gaz, who rescued me. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I usually sure? I, I, I begin to think Julian uh, John Vince might be gaslighting me, but it definitely he says it wasn't him, and, and several other people, including the, the woman who he was with, who was his wife, said it wasn't John Vince. So I took her word for it, essentially, uh, until eventually the woman who was his wife said, "I think you should probably keep digging now." John, n- not John Vince, started to run out of uh, humour about me thinking he was John Vince, and accused yes. of, Yeah. Uh, eventually, oh, I, t- I told Ali that story when I got home. She was waiting to go out on tour. And she, she thought it was hilarious. Right? She's literally <laughs> looking at her watch, saying, "When's this story that was shit in the first place ever going to stop?" Um, anyway, the question. Uh, Pele against Ronaldo, what would, what would Pele's $1.4 million? And, and I noticed, Kieran, it, more and more, interestingly, people are asking you to to equate these figures. So people, uh, certainly of our generation, can can understand what a million pound meant when Trevor Francis went for it, but they kind of can't get their head around
0: what these staggering figures are now. Yes, uh, and for anybody watching the show on video, by the way, um, I, I have a fly in my office which keeps walking over the camera so if that's why my face suddenly disappears with a big blurry splodge um but is that sorry kieran is there an option to watch this show on video i I don't know um, Uh, but producer guy he's 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 always three steps ahead of us when it comes to the technology uh, when it comes to getting to the bank
1: yeah certainly Uh, (laughs) i i i think i'd rather I'd, i'd be slightly Against people being able to see what we see us as well, Kieran. But I mean, I can see the fly. Obviously, it's it's very funny seeing you distracted by a large splodge-like object.
0: <laughs> <coughs> uh, yes, carry on. Sorry. Hello, Smudge. Right. Um. Are, are you sure that John Vince doesn't have a doppelganger? Because wasn't it Colo Toro that claimed to be a professional sportsman? And there was an, there's another Premier League player who claimed to be a milkman. Oh um for he was having he was having a relationship with a young lady who wasn't his wife Ooh. and he managed to convince her that he was a milkman um and that's why he kept turning up at strange times uh but he was uh, he was uh, doing things of a nefarious nature or uh, or carnival relations as my most uh, my grandmother used to say very she, she was very angry reading the daily mirror but those two have been having carnival relations i bet you know, before, well, yeah. before... <clears throat>
1: we've done it on swings we've done it on roundabouts Kieran, you know uh, so, I'm just intrigued by the fact that this chap thought she'd be more impressed by. It. Having an affair with a milkman and a Premier League footballer. But- <laughs>
0: that's right. Yes, very true. And and then when he started giving her very expensive gifts, she said he said, Uh yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a professional tennis player as well. <laughs> 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 <Okay>. What? <laughs> so Yeah, okay. yeah when, when you're in a hole, just stop digging. Yeah, yeah exactly and, and also, we've, we've, that's- don't you. Don't do Carnival Relations. No,
1: no. Uh, oh, no if she gets you
0: free yoghurt, Kieran, then why not? Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a separate <laughs> Um Right. So um, thank you very much, John, for this question, because it allowed me to go to Spreadsheet Heaven. Um, Pele was... Uh, uh, was playing for the New York Cosmos in, in around about 1975, 76. So I've done two calculations here. First of all, based on wage inflation between 1975 and 2023. And wage inflation, Pele would be on $15.2 million. A decent sum of money, yeah. but, you know we've got we've got players in the premier league on on more than that so what i've done is is i've used uh, something used football inflation and the way that i calculate football inflation is that i look at the ability of the football club to pay money out from the money that it's got coming in so i i went into companies house and i managed to find Uh, A few of the the bigger clubs, the likes of Liverpool and Manchester United and so on. So I went into their accounts in 1975 and 1976, compared them to today. And on the basis of those calculations, Pele's salary uh, in 2023 would be $817,699,114 a year. Exactly. Wow. Eight, yeah. Repeat that figure for me, Kieran, please, would you? $817,699,114 wow. would be the equivalent, assuming that the the revenue of the New York Cosmos has grown yeah. as quickly as it has in, in the Premier League is, as concerned, which is, uh, is, is an awful lot of money. Uh, we'll have to see how much uh, the Saudi Pro League is willing to offer some players in the next week or two. Um, whether it will come anything close to that. Yeah, has there has there there's some confusion about this? Is their transfer window still open? Yes it is. It's it's uh, I think it's open until about the seventh or the eighth of September. So they've they've got uh, a, a week of uh, mischief making and near do welling should they so desire to go down that route oh, and, right. and, and attracting <clears throat> players from the Premier League. Oh right, that's interesting because And else
1: uh, and else but there was some discussion on this today as to whether and I didn't know the answers as to whether uh, the fact that our transfer window uh, was closed, some people seem to think that meant that you can't, you couldn't buy people from the Premier League, but you still... So, no, so, no you, the, the Premier League cannot buy players. Okay, right. So, But Liverpool, the Saudi Pro League can. So Liverpool fans can't quite sleep easily in their bed for a few days yet?
0: Yeah. Mm,
1: okay. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that would be very kind of you. And you can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And if you'd like to pre-order our new book, Unfit and Improper Persons, or one of our other books, or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt, you can go to our new look website at priceoffootball.com. We will be back with our news pod on Thursday. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kira Maguire for his customary farewell.
0: Well, thank you, everybody at Patreon and uh, those of you that uh, that tuned in for our first Discord. It was it was great to chat to you on that it as was. well. Um, there are many ways of of supporting the show, uh, and we are looking forward to meeting some of you uh, when the when the autumn tour is crystallised. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've certainly got dates as far as Salford, Lowry, and Blackpool are concerned with others to follow, there's another way that you can support the show, and that's to give us a review. And apparently, according to Producer Guy, it helps us as far as algorithms and metrics and convincing the guests that we are legitimate and not just a pair of chances from South London. Um, So by all accounts, it it doesn't matter what you say. You could even say you would rather have the show presented by Mike Dean, who's perhaps (laughs) not the coolest person on the planet, (laughs) And Chrissy Hind, oh. who I think is the coolest person on the planet. Oh, she wasn't she was fantastic at Glastonbury, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: well let's 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 bin Mike Dean and just have okay. let's just have Chrissy Hind doing it. Because we, we just get in fact Chrissy Hind's probably got issues with Mike Dean as well, I imagine over various <laughs> yes. VAR decisions that she's done to annoy done to annoy VAR VAR's working really well, isn't it? Um, I wonder how much that costs Chrissy Hind is oh. Oh, see, that's how to get a man of a certain age just just <laughs> <laughs> drifting off to the inevitable <laughs> conclusion. No, I didn't. That sounded worse than it was. Um, bye, everybody.
0: Bye. bye. My son
1: for football.